0: Welcome to the fifth episode in the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series on the NGO of the future. Of all the challenges faced by NGOs, perhaps the greatest is the challenge of adapting to a digitalized world. New digital technologies have the potential to make NGOs more efficient, more effective, and to scale to meet unmet need. However, they also pose significant risks. In this episode, co-host Rachel Mason-Nunn and I speak with Pia Corona and David Spriggs on the digital challenge facing NGOs. Pia works at Boston Consulting Group in Africa and is a core member of the firm's social impact practice. Prior to joining BCG, she worked for a private bank in Geneva and with Save the Children in Southern Africa. David Spriggs is the CEO of the Australian NGO Info Exchange and Chair of the Australian Digital Inclusion Alliance. We hope you enjoy the episode.
1: The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whitlam. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whitelam is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors, giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn.
0: Pia and David, welcome to the podcast. COVID-19 has resulted in a massive digital leap forward. In Australia, we've seen a mass migration of workers to home. Mobile money and digital payments have soared as we've stopped using cash and global internet traffic has increased by 70%. Were NGOs prepared for this massive digital leap forward or were they caught napping?
2: Unfortunately, in, in our experience, you know, we found a lot of NGOs really weren't prepared. Um, at InfoExchange, we do a, an annual survey of the sector to look at the use of digital technology across the sector. Um, so the last survey we did in October 2020, that was one of the questions we asked. And the basic question was, you know, were you prepared for that shift for staff and volunteers to, to work remotely? Um, and unfortunately we found only 30 percent of organizations across the sector had the infrastructure in place to to enable that Um, and so as you said what we saw was a kind of rapid digitization and we said at the time you know i think we saw more digital transformation in the first three months of the pandemic than we had seen in the previous three years um, and a couple of stages to that. One was organizations trying to do that rapid in- installation of and, and access to, to cloud software for Zoom meetings and Google and Microsoft Cloud, for example. But the second wave, and really I think more interestingly for me, was around service transformation. And so organizations thinking how they might deliver their services differently not just during COVID, but then what that might look like afterwards as well. So for example, financial counselling or mental health services, you know, interacting through digital channels and, uh, and serving communities digitally with it in, uh, in services that might have been traditionally face-to-face.
0: Pia, you're based in East Africa. What did it look like from your perspective?
3: Thank you, Paul. Thank you, David. I think you know we, we agree, <laughs> seated in different geographies. But so in this side of the world where I sit, uh, the same answer: the large majority no. But has in all sectors affected by the pandemic, some actors were more prepared than others. So there are important exceptions that we need to praise, and also some type of support had already. Evolve more to the digital space. For example, on energy, the solar home system solutions are a great example. Uh, But if you think about health, food security, education, social protection, the vast majority of programs didn't even have the phone contacts of the beneficiaries they support. Which means for a certain period, operations froze. I agree with you, David, uh, that, you know, we, can, we kind of react, but we are still in reacting mode in many uh, places of, uh, of sub-Saharan Africa.
1: If I can jump in there, I think a lot of NGOs would perceive a digital transformation to be very expensive. And when we're talking about the impacts of COVID-19, where NGO revenue has fallen, um, in many cases, operating costs have increased, demand for NGO services has also gone up. This feels like a really difficult time to incentivize digital transformation. So I'm interested in your thoughts on whether the digital agenda can actually help NGOs to reduce costs.
2: I I think it's a a really significant issue. And I I think, yes, sort of that digital transformation journey can help organisations in in reducing costs. But also I think it's to enable greater impact. And especially, uh, you know, with the onset of the pandemic, as there have been so much service demand, um, the the ability for digital to help respond to that. Also, I think just to be honest, for some organisations, this is about survival. I mean, we were working with an organisation just pre-pandemic. You know, they're an organisation using these outdated and inefficient systems. And they came to the realisation that not having the digital capability was actually putting in jeopardy their whole ability to to serve communities. And that's what drove their business case. It wasn't Mm -hmm. about just reducing a little bit of cost or improving a little bit of efficiency you know they honestly thought they may not be able to continue to exist unless they made this investment so that was a that was a compelling case to their board and and their leadership team and fortunately they went through that transformation just prior to covid and so then they were capable when they needed to do that shift for staff and volunteers to be working remotely, they were ready for it. But it also enabled them to do a, you know, a whole lot of additional things like uh, reach their, their clients and their members through digital channels, which they never would have been able to do before. Um, and some of the limited field work that they were doing during the pandemic, you know, they then had access to, to do that. They had the, the mobile technology to be able to go out and do that. Um, so th- those were all benefits, you know, resulting from COVID. But really the, their their initial motivation was one around survival. It wasn't wasn't optional. It wasn't just about tweaking a little bit of efficiency. Um it was absolutely about survival for them.
3: Thank you, David. And you know, I I, I agree, I agree in elements, let <laughs> that way. So yes, it was, you know, it took us all to survival mode, but I actually see a lot of benefit from it. Um uh, and actually, you know, the, the efficiencies are much more than the investment you need to do, often quite not that substantial. Um, so as BCG, we actually did some estimatives in terms of savings to digitize the external interface of programming, what I like to call delivery model. And we are talking about 10 to 20% savings just by digitizing how you collect inputs from the beneficiaries and how you deliver knowledge and technical expertise to national and local institutions. But this is only the tip of the iceberg, if you think about it, because I'm not even questioning the delivery model itself. Of course, every program is very different, but the vast majority center in this delivery model that brings knowledge and technical expertise to national and local institutions that then deliver to beneficiaries and then collecting inputs from the beneficiaries to shape the needs of this technical support so these 10 to 20 percent are from digitizing these existing interactions and exchanges of data and information but for example if instead of focusing on doing training to healthcare workers on already capacity constrained healthcare centers um, if you brought technology to do self-diagnose or use digital to deliver education in remote locations and displaced populations like the large refugee camps in Dadaab or Kakuma. So the answer is digital and data. With digital and data, you can do much less and get much more, which today is so critical to sustain the continuity of the support we are giving. And, you know, like 10 to 20, we heard the UK is cutting 30%. You can achieve savings in 20%. I mean, you're more than halfway through to what you need to cut.
0: You're absolutely right, Pia. There are huge cost-saving opportunities for NGOs from better leveraging digital technologies. But, David, you've gone even further and said it's essentially an existential crisis for NGOs if they cannot adapt to this new digital environment. Do you think boards and donors understand just how important it is for NGOs to be able to make this transition?
3: So I'm, and this, you know, from this side of the world where I sit, I'm sure I'm not going to be a crowd pleaser with what I'm going to say, Uh, but I often see a very big distance and I don't mean in mileage only between boards and people programming on the ground. But for me, the key question here, more than if there is appreciation, is how the donors and the NGO boards can drive this digital transformation. It can't be completely centralized because for it to succeed, it needs to be user-centric. For example, for ages, we've been trying for African women to substitute their traditional stoves for cooking to minimize the risk of gas inhalation and all the healthcare, the health consequences. And there was zero uptake. And we insisted and insisted and redesigned the stoves a million times and delivered training in how to use it. But it failed because the substituting technology meant more prep of the wood, longer cooking times, and that you could not take the ice from the stove. Well. If you're a woman uh, in a remote location of Africa doing 18 hours of unpaid work, that is just not a possibility. So for me, the question really is the framework that donors and boards need to put in place to drive these digital innovations with a user-centric approach. And then of course, use the power of their central structures to scale it.
2: Yeah, and I, I completely agree with those comments on the the user centric approach being being so important. Um, from our perspective, across boards and donors, I think I think boards are, are slowly getting better at this. Um, We we certainly notice a significant difference, though, in boards that have somebody with some technology expertise on the board to be asking those questions um, versus those organisations that that don't. Um, From a donor perspective, I think it's interesting, I think, if you think about individual donors, there's still a lot of argument to say, what's the percentage of my giving that's going directly to uh, to people in need and, and not necessarily valuing an organisation um, that has a reasonable percentage in back office costs to actually uh, improve the uh, improve the quality of that giving, improve the quality of the service that they're offering. So I think that's a real challenge to educate individual donors. Um, We are though seeing some positive signs from the philanthropic community. Um, and uh, philanthropy organisations that are directly funding capacity building and digital capacity building activities for the sector. We've just done a, a large project with uh, with Google, who's one of our close partners, and Google.org, Google.org the philanthropic arm of Google, has just funded a, a project undertaken by Ashoka with ourselves at InfoExchange to build the digital capacity of their grantees across the, the Asia-Pacific region. And their rationale was if they help to improve the digital capacity of their of the organizations they're supporting financially they'll have a much higher um return and return in terms of uh, impact of what those organizations are are doing Um, similarly we've seen that in australia as well and we just we've just recently launched a new project here in australia called the digital transformation hub to help small to medium ngos with that digital transformation journey um, and it's been funded by philanthropy. It's been funded here by the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation and Gandell Philanthropy. And they've, both those organisations have specifically quarantined part of their giving to say they want to use that money to help strengthen the sector. And they see digital as a, as a key enabler there so i'm not saying that's that's solved the the problem and i still think there's many uh, you know philanthropic organisations out there that don't value a lot of that investment in digital and some of the back office in organisations but it's it's pleasing to see those examples of those organisations that are recognising that value
1: yeah, I completely agree. And I think staying on the topic of um, the way digital can support NGOs to be more effective, an emerging area of thought seems to be technology for development. So looking at how technology can uh, improve development outcomes. And I think that presents a really compelling argument for investment in, in technology and in digital so using that as an example, I put a question to both of you. What technologies do you see as having the greatest potential in helping NGOs to achieve their mission?
3: Well, I think there are you know, a lot of great examples in the digital space, space, but you know, to my point, it really needs to follow a user-centric. So there is not a one size necessarily fits for all, and you always need to keep this touch with the user. And, and as VCG, we actually developed a library of some great examples across thematic areas. So if you look for example at health and nutrition, patient engagement on diagnosis through digital, has been quite successful. On food security, digital cash transfers, you know, are leading the way forward. On advocacy, the role of social media. On education, you know, no surprise technology to Deliver the remote learning, and it's you know hitting the the news everywhere. On social pr- protection, a lot of digital is being used to repro- report and track abuses. So you know, really great specific examples. But for donors and across thematic areas, so this is my call out to donors: there is an incredible opportunity to leverage data to more precisely map the needs. Develop much more target interventions and model the impact of your support. I mean, this cannot be missed, and the pressure is now.
2: And, and I think for, for us, or for me at least, it's it's around the the application of the technology rather than the technology itself. I think there's you know there's always a lot of talk around you know the latest buzzwords around artificial intelligence or machine learning or big data and cloud and all of those sorts of things, Um, if if we look at kind of how technology is being used to to improve impact, often it's not the latest bleeding edge technologies, it's just the the application of the technologies we have, as Peter said, kind of following that user-centric approach. And I'd I'd give an example here in Australia of something InfoExchange has worked on called Ask Izzy. Um, and it's a, a mobile website that we developed initially to help people who are homeless or at risk of homelessness connect in with services. So we had a large scale service directory. It was used traditionally by the not-for-profit sector and by government to help people connect with, with services. Um, and our insight was that uh, in Australia, at least over 80% of people who are homeless have a mobile phone. So why don't, why don't we use that technology to put that information directly into the hands of, of people who need it? Um, And that service has really scaled and particularly during COVID opened us up to a whole new audience that we weren't expecting um, of people who might have lost their job or were in financial difficulties and needed needed help and needed access to services. Um, And so using that sort of a digital platform enabled us to to rapidly scale and have a lot more impact in, in our work um but i wouldn't say the technology was particularly groundbreaking it was you know using mobile technology using web technology you know using some artificial intelligence inside it but it was all about the application of the technology and as you said appear kind of responding to responding to the need in in community. so that that would be my advice for organisations is don't necessarily follow the technology just for technology's sake. I think that's where that's where people have burnt a lot of a lot of funds in the past, follow the the need in community.
0: Thanks, David. You mentioned scale, and I'm keen to ask you Pierre about this issue of scaling innovation. I see a lot of NGOs involved in innovation. But I don't see a lot of NGOs successfully taking that innovation to scale, and I guess I certainly don't see too many donors coming behind some of these emerging innovations and really helping NGOs to scale. Does it look similar to that in Africa, or are you seeing something different?
3: No, it's it, it uh, I mean, I can say it. Fortunately, resonates a lot, but I think you know there there are two group of barriers, and again, call out. NGOs, donors, you need to work together on this one. It's not <laughs> an individual work. So on the program design, you see long programming cycles, three to five years, which is great. You need you know, to have long-term support. But there is limited flexibility to change the original work plan and deliverables. So when you do the mid-term assessments, the key question you're asking is if you're doing according to plan, not if you could do more or better. And you also have very short design inception phases focused on process, not innovation, and often not integrating the end users. So on program design, we we really need to rethink this. This is not um, an environment conducive for innovation. And also in terms of programming performance, performance models are often based on spending. And overheads to finance very important central and regional structures are a percentage of the program costs. So you're not really creating incentives in terms of performance for more efficiency. This is not something that can be addressed by one or the other. It needs to be together, donors and NGOs.
2: And we see significant issues with funders not really seeing the value in funding projects that, that will scale existing initiatives, in fact, digital, digital or otherwise. Um, so often it's about funders looking for you know, innovation being, what's the next new bright, shiny thing that they can go and fund? as opposed to saying, here's something that's working really well. (laughs) Let's fund the next stage of that and let's fund that to continue to scale. Um, You know, we're starting to see some foundations, you know, work differently in that space As one we were dealing with recently, which um, I was really pleased with had a whole category called a a thrive category, which only funded existing initiatives um, that were proven to a point to enable them to to scale to the next level. Um, But I think it's a it's a really significant issue with funders that are always just looking for the next, you know, the next new innovative thing as opposed to funding initiatives that are already working.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Another area I'd like to discuss is the digital divide. Um, And I think what we've seen in this pandemic is the digital divide really being exacerbated um, as as so many of our pre-existing social issues have been exacerbated. Are NGOs themselves doing a lot to or doing enough to combat that digital divide?
2: I can say here in, here in Australia, at least, I think NGOs could be doing a lot more around the digital divide, but I also don't think it's a problem just for NGOs. I, I think this is really one of those issues where it needs collaboration and working across NGOs, across governments and across industry. Um, so from an Australian perspective, we look at it and we say there's a percentage of Australians that aren't online at all there's then a much larger percentage um, that don't have the the skills, the digital skills and confidence to to interact in the digital economy. And as you said, that very much came to the fore and became a mainstream issue during the pandemic as we moved to doing school from home during lockdown. And there were so many families that were, you know, that were missing out on on being able to connect. Um, But if if we look at the kind of the issues that underlie it, it's for the... uh, um, for our work in Australia, at least, we look at the access problem, um, and the access problem is actually being solved pretty well now in terms of access to reliable broadband. So then it comes to issues like affordability, um, and in our view, affordability is an issue that can be solved by government and industry working together with the appropriate evidence and advocacy from, from NGOs. We've got the issue if we call it ability, um, so building digital skills in community, that's an area where we think NGOs can play a significant role. And again, government has a role, we think, in, in funding those activities. And the final area we look at is around accessibility. So um, access to all of this digital technology for people, with a, for people with a disability. Again, kind of the NGO sector can play a major role there in you know, using some of the assistive technology um, but a I, I, I takeaway for, for NGOs, the number of NGOs that I go and look at their website and it hasn't been built with accessibility in mind for people with a disability. And given that's such a segment that uh, those organisations are trying to serve, I think that's one particular area that the sector needs to do a lot better in.
0: I think that's a really strong point, David. And Pia, the situation is even worse in Africa. I saw a statistic recently that suggested that to download your favourite one hour of a Netflix show would cost about the average monthly wage of someone living in Africa. So obviously cost is a huge barrier. The other big issue in Africa is the gender digital divide, the fact that far fewer women are able to access the internet. What needs to be done about that?
3: Thank you, Paul. I mean, uh, it's, it's a different level of complexity. And I think... Uh, your perspective on the two elements, both accents and affordability. but to your point uh, Paul it's you know very much exacerbated in in Africa. On the gender gap, well <laughs> that could be a we could have a one podcast about the den- the gender gap. Um, but definitely it's something you know that y- you can have specific interventions. But to be effective, you need to bring it to the root cause, which you know often has more than the access to a specific uh, uh, type of technology, or you know, and the implications on the affordability go more than affordability for that type of technology, um, and you know the work that is being done on gender. Um, It's very much variant on country and it's also very country specific, uh, the gender dynamics. But I, you know, I fully agree that is, you know, a must, but not only about access to technology, to any type of programming you do in Africa. But I, I just want to add a point to what you said, David, in terms of the access and, uh, and affordability, that I actually think, you know, the, the role that NGOs can support, either focusing or not in this specific element, is has programs start to leverage more technology They actually also create the business case for public and private sector investments in terms of infrastructure development and technology distributions. So has a a community, NGOs in Africa, being focused or not in this topic really have a very important role by incorporating digital in their programming?
2: I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more and just on, on some of the gender divide that we, uh, that we have in Australia. So it's it's quite pronounced in digital skills and particularly digital skills for work in, uh, in older women is, is an area of significant, significant gap in, in Australia. Um, but to build on your comments from the enabling side, um, we also see the, the effective use of, of technology in areas like family violence, for example, um, where we're in Australia, we have a um, what was traditionally a phone-based service for people to connect with called Safe Steps, for people experiencing family violence to connect with. Um, during COVID, they made a very quick pivot and transition across to using digital web chat, um, and people weren't comfortable to pick up the phone when they were in lockdown, and so the use of the use of the digital channel. Um, made, a, made a significant difference in terms of opening up access to, to those services to, to women. We also just last week in Australia had an annual not-for-profit technology awards and one of the uh, winners of that award in the social media category was a group called This Life Cambodia um, and they were using social media in Cambodia to uh, address in issues of uh, victim blaming and, uh, and family violence just to, to build awareness in, in community. So so I think there is a significant disparity from a gender perspective in the digital divide, Um, but there's also the opportunity to to leverage the, the technology for those that are connected.
1: Thanks, David. I think, David and Pia, we've painted a very optimistic picture of technology, and, of course, the benefits that we're talking about are really, really significant. However, I think we do need to mention that there can be a more harmful, dark side of technology. And we have seen a lot of high-profile examples amongst NGOs in Australia um, and abroad where NGOs have lost the data um, of their donors or even their beneficiaries. Um, And we've also seen examples of the misuse of technology. Are NGOs doing enough to address that?
2: So there's a large number of topics in there. I mean, one one of the big ones from, from our perspective is the lack of preparedness from an information security perspective from, from NGOs. The the survey that I referred to earlier, we undertake of the sector annually, one of the most worrying stats that came out of that report for me was that only 54% of the NGOs that responded to the survey said they had ways of actively monitoring information security and, and cyber risks. So only 50%. And as worrying as that is, only 50% of that 50% said they then had ways to manage those risks and respond to those risks. (laughs) So if you put those two stats together, you're down to 25% of organisations saying that they were able to effectively manage and respond to information security and and cyber risks. Um, And these attacks are getting more and more sophisticated Um, It's not just the the smaller organisations. There's been some very high-profile breaches recently in Australia from organisations like Oxfam, like Anglicare New South Wales, just in the last few weeks, Uniting Care up in Queensland, which has literally crippled their hospitals, their aged care facilities, the number of their their social services, Um, to the the point where in uh, in government circles, this is now being put up there in terms of the, the top three risks that government are looking at from the NGO sector. Um, This is what home affairs are looking at in Australia in terms of the risk, the national security risk for these NGOs not being prepared and not appropriately uh, securing their environment or or clients' data. So I think it's an area that needs a a massive focus of attention um, and a much larger investment from uh, from NGOs and, and government alike.
0: Pia, we've seen in international humanitarian settings Many NGOs starting to collect biometric data from clients to improve efficiency and as a way of meeting that massive gap that we talked about earlier between the need and the available funding. If that biometric data gets into the wrong hands, it can be extraordinarily damaging to already vulnerable people. Are international NGOs doing enough to protect that type of data?
3: Thank you, Paul. Um, I mean, as many of the elements of this conversation, things just get very aggravated uh, when we <laughs> move to this side of the world. Uh, so there is a lot that needs to be done. And today, building on David's point, we also need to build to create the oversight competencies in the institutions and governments which you might benefit of having in other geographies, kind of this oversight and overseeing role. So you do have a dual mandate, you know, through what you're doing and implementing, but also in creating this competency locally to kind of also independently monitor um, these risks much closer. So, I mean, very short, there is... Still a lot, a lot to be done.
2: Uh, I, and I think it's one of those areas where you, you do need a lot more collaboration between NGOs, between funders and, and between governments. Um, certainly what, what we're seeing in Australia is a lot of governments putting more and more and more clauses in their service agreements with NGOs saying they're requiring them to comply with all of these information security standards. Um, but in a lot of cases, you know, the organisations just don't have the, the capability to, to respond to that. Um, so rather than just putting it in a contract, you know, I think that's, that's an example where government and the sector needs to work together with, with donors to, to address this issue.
0: David, that was one of the reasons I was so disappointed to see the Australian government's recently released digital strategy, failed to even mention the NGO sector. It's a huge missed opportunity for government as well as the sector. So we've covered a range of issues in this podcast. From an NGO management perspective, we've spoken about how critical digital is to the actual survival of the organisation. We've encouraged donors to be more flexible about their funding. Pia, you've really emphasised the importance of getting user experience into the design process. And we've spoken about the role of boards. Do they have the right expertise? Are they devoting the right amount of time to the issue? And do they really understand the risks? So if there was just one thing that an NGO should focus on, what would you each say it should be?
2: So one, one thing might be might be difficult, but uh, but the, the one takeaway I would try and leave um, boards and leadership with is that... Not to, not to see digital transformation as a, as a project or a one-off, that really digital transformation is a, is a journey and it needs a long-term investment from organisations. It's not just a we need to fund this for the next year or the next year or two. It needs to become a, a permanent fixture in the, the funding of organisations. So that would be my one thing. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that digital transformation is a one-off activity.
3: Fully, fully agreed, David and to that so you really need to focus on eliminating these barriers because if the incentives are not there you know you you, you might create you know an incentive for a project one off but not for that you know full transformation that is required and on the second element give me two <laughs> elements to say is really to have you know, put in place a framework that allows you for this balance of, you know, using your very powerful central structures to scale, but without putting at risk the innovation that needs to come from the ground. So how do you master this?
1: Yeah, great points. Thank you both so much. That's a fantastic note to finish on. This conversation has been so insightful um, and we're so grateful for your time.
0: I hope you really enjoyed this episode in the Goodwill Hunters autumn series on the NGO of the future. Look out for our next episode in the series, exploring the NGO workforce of the future with Christy Muir and Lawrence Goldstone.